0: Hey, this is Ben Powers coming at you from the Commander's Voice. Today I'm here with the author, excuse me, Mark Vlahos, author of the book Men Will Come, a history of the 314th Troop Carrier Group from 1942 to 1945. Mark, welcome. How are you, sir?
1: I'm doing great, Ben.
0: Thanks for having me tonight. So if you could give us a little bit of your background uh, and how you came to get an interest in troop carriers, how you came to be interested in writing, and then we can kind of go into the book from there.
1: Sure. Well, just on me, uh, I was in the Air Force, served for 29 years, uh, flew C-130, so I'm a troop carrier guy, so that's my interest in troop carriers. You know, I've dropped paratroopers, the Airborne Mission, Air Land Air Assault, some special op stuff, insertion stuff. I've, I've done the full gamut of stuff, and uh, I was in the 314th and in my career, most of my career my 06 command was the 314th so in my career I flew with three of the four original squadrons hence in the 1980s and 90s at squadron reunions I got to meet a lot of the original you know World War 2 vets that were a lot of them still around and listen to their stories and uh, sadly they're all gone now and none of them wrote a book and there wasn't a book about the 314th so I just got called to do it You know, it was a calling, a labor of love.
0: That's outstanding. Is this the first book you wrote?
1: It's actually my second book. Um, I'm working on my my third right now. My uh, first book was actually an Army book. It's called uh, Winfield Scott's Vision for the Army. And this is just a little thing compared to what you got in your hands there. But uh, (laughs) what was neat, uh, I took my thesis from my 06 War College, my 50-page paper, and I extend expanded it out into a two hundred five book, two hundred five page book after I retired. So,
0: that's very cool. So, now you like you you referred to it. This thing is a weighty tome. This is what about over five hundred pages. And you, the thing that fascinated me about this as I was reading it was the the amount of primary resources that you have on every page. There are hand drawn maps. There are photographs. There are manifests. There are timelines. Uh, there are excerpts from orders, Uh, how how did you go about your primary research, and where did you have access to all this great information, and the ability to reproduce it in the book?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, anybody who wants to do something like this, obviously the first place you got to go is to the service archives. The Army has archives, and the Air Force, for this case, you know, the Air Force archives. So all the archives from World War II obviously are in microfilm now, and, you know, you have to request to get copies of those. And that's great. That is the squadron history as written by them, but I can just tell you, especially in 1942, in most of '43, the, the squadron histories, you know, they weren't maintained that well because we were more worried about, you know, trying to contain the Nazis and, and get established rather than writing about what we were doing at the time. But, uh, but that's good stuff. That's that's my clock going off behind me. <laughs> but uh, the gold mine I really hit. There are personal collections out there that you gotta find through families, you know, who have them and own them. And luckily, uh, the colonel who commanded the 314th, the entire war they were overseas, deployed with them in 1943, and commanded them till after VE Day, was a pack rat. He saved every piece of paper, every squadron, every squadron op orders for the day, the the daily orders, the bulletin board stuff, the The paper they developed, the rag, and uh, every piece of correspondence he wrote back and forth to his wife, there were 275 letters. I mean, he was a pack rat. 210 boxes of primary source material. (laughs) All those copies of those orders where I got a lot of crew manifests at the University of Wyoming is where I found his papers. So I had to go out to Laramie, Wyoming for a week.
0: Now that's outstanding. Now, one, one question I have is... From all that primary research and all those, you know, op orders and things like that you are referring to, you transition so well in the book to actual, you know, very personal stories that are told by the men themselves. Uh, I remember one story I was reading about guys returning from dropping troops on Operation Neptune and the aircraft was severely damaged and it – it's appeared there was going to be no way that this aircraft could come down, but you had first-person reports from the pilot, the navigator, of how they were actually able to return to base. Uh, Aircraft might not have been salvageable, but they saved the crew. So did that come from personal letters? Did that come from interviews? How were you able to transition from your trove of primary but dry documentation to those really personal stories?
1: Well, again, because I was an insider, I knew the 314th and the families. You know, I knew about 40 families – and through the the, the da- sons, daughters, and grandsons allowed me to uh, to access copies of stuff their fathers, grandfathers wrote. And that's where those a lot of those personal things came in. You know, when the men had reunions after the war is when they really started writing stuff down in the 1990s. And that was when there was a goldmine of primary source material, when these guys got together. And that's when they talked. You know, World War II vets... They didn't tell their sons and daughters what they did, you know. But when they got around their buddies at reunions, they talked. And uh, and that's when these guys started recording some of their stuff, you know, 50 years later. And that's 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 the Goldmine stuff.
0: Very, very cool. Do you feel a particular kinship with the officer who had his uh, files at the University of Wyoming? You know, you've been a commander. You were in 06. He was a combat leader.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what's interesting is, like, I've got to be – his son – is 84 year olds, his son is a retired Army 06, West Point grad, 1959. And uh, I, I got a I established a personal relationship with his son, the son of the World War II commander. He lives up in Maine. I just cold called him out of the blue one day. This was three years ago. And uh, he didn't know who I was. I told him who I was. I was writing a book, and you know, I, I wanted if his dad was the group commander, and, and I just said, Hey, your dad's going to be the, the primary player in my book, and uh, would you support my effort? And then it was just, just amazing, the stuff he, first of all, he told me about the papers in the University of Wyoming. I didn't know they were there until his son told me. And it was a great story, because all this stuff was in their garage, and when the colonel passed, Colonel Clayton Stiles, he retired as a two-star general, by the way, he stayed in the reserves, and uh, it was in the Korean War, retired in, in 19, uh, early 60s, 60, 68, from the military, but uh, as a reservist, but uh, all the stuff was in a garage. And when he passed, his, his, uh, his wife tried to give it to the military, and they wouldn't take it. So it's mind. just the Air Force wouldn't take it. So they found a letter on his desk from a buddy who uh, was corresponding with the University of Wyoming who had sent some stuff. So they just called up the University of Wyoming and said, Hey, we've got all this stuff. Would you like it? They said, Don't touch a thing, we'll send a truck pack it up, we'll inventory it, we'll take it. And, uh, and, and here's something, the, the largest archives west of the Mississippi River at the University of Wyoming for anybody doing research.
0: That's good to know. That's an excellent tip. Was there any particular yeah. story that resonated with you about the combat experience of these men, something you found similar to the things you might have experienced or just something that you didn't know about World War II pilots until you got to get into this documentation? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I flew combat
1: missions, uh, night on night missions on night vision goggles. You know, totally blacked out, landed in blacked out places in Afghanistan. Early when we were kicking in the door in two thousand and one, uh, I was actually over there as a, a squadron commander. But uh, it, it's just a, you know, when you're and we flew from Oman, Muscat, Oman into into Afghanistan. So it's a four hour flight in. Uh, we had to either land in Pakistan get fuel and come home or you know it's an all- night a deal you know just for a, uh, a an hour you know insertion mission you know once you know in combat Certainly. and uh, but it just reflecting after I can just it's funny when after the guys flew d-day and all those night drops you know they land come back they all go to the chow hall tent you know get coffee you know that's the same thing we did you know and we just talk about it you know what happened that night because you know, when you're doing the mission, you're not thinking about anything but the mission, you know, and, you, and your buddies and you want everybody to come back. And uh, But just uh, the men afterwards, you know, having that coffee in the chow hall tent before they went to sleep because they were going to fly the next night, you know, really? just like we did. So it was like that pattern, that night flying pattern, you know, I, I lived it. So that was neat.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Now, this podcast is for members of uh, the 82nd Airborne Division, the, the Signal Corps chapter of the Division Association. You've got some interesting associations with the division. You're parachute qualified yourself, aren't you?
1: Yeah. Well, you guys would call me a cherry jumper, I guess. <laughs> I went through Fort Benning as, as a cadet, but an uh, uh, Air Force RJC cadet when I was at uh, VPI, Virginia Polytechnic Institute, now Virginia Tech in the Corps there, but uh but I love the, uh, the airborne mission and C-130s were my first choice out of flight school.
0: Very
1: so, cute. uh, my heart was in the airborne mission and, uh, my, my, younger sister, her company command was headquarters, 18th airborne Corps under general luck, by the way, oh, wow. uh, her husband was a company commander in the 82nd F a artillery guy, 105s, 105s. And he's a West point grad. And, uh, My younger sister, oh, here's one for you, she was uh, one of three female battalion commanders under General Petraeus when we crossed the berm in 2003
0: in Iraq. Oh, wow. That's outstanding. That's a lot of airborne connection right there. Yeah, she
1: commanded the MI Battalion in the 101st, you know, under Petraeus. So she retired as the 101st G2, so got a lot of army in the family. Uh, I'm a a C-130 guy, and... We're kind of the, the pimple on the butthole, you know, in the Air Force. You know, we're not sexy weapon system. We live with the Army and the Marines in the dirt. So, you know, it was it was great.
0: Oh, that's outstanding. Now, you and I talked in the past a little bit. You said you are uh, focusing on gliders. Is something about the, the, the glider riders or another research interest of yours? Well, what's interesting is I just got into World War II
1: three years ago. I was a Civil War historian for 30 years. In a Civil War reenactor for 30 years, but when I first started, when I got the calling to write the 314th book, you know, I dove into troop carrier history, I had no knowledge of the gliders and glider pilots. Glider pilots were embedded in the troop carrier squadrons, so I had to learn about gliders. My knowledge of gliders was zero, went from zero to megafold in three years, just because to write this book, and, and then there's another great story in that, so I get on the web one day and I find, you know, the world war two national glider pilot committee association or committee. And I start paying them for questions and, uh, you know, you know, for information for my book. And, uh, and the, and I got the president of the, uh, of this organization is Patricia Overman. She lives in, uh, Seattle. Her, uh, her father was a glider pilot in world war two and she's obviously, and uh, finally one day Patricia goes, "Mark, why don't you just join us, okay? Then I, you can stop bugging me about, you know, asking me questions all the time. You'll have access to our database, okay? But then in turn, you can join our research team and be our 314th expert." So it was a win-win for them and a win-win for me. So I joined. I'm now in the research team, the Leon B Spencer research team, and I am there th- now I, I am their 314th expert. So we do free research for families and relatives of World War II glider pilots. We have a database of all the glider pilots, about 6,000 of them. And uh, so when a family, grandson, son, daughter, they want to, you know, know, they find that box of stuff, you know, medals and papers, and they don't know what their relative did, they contact us. We provide free research for families, so it's a way of giving back.
0: That's terrific. uh, So I'm I'm
1: full of ground in that. I've I've done about 40 researches, you know, for when it's the 314th, you know, comes to me as a task. There's about 12 of us on the research team and a lot of expertise. That's and some right. of them are in Europe. That you know, they're American. French. We have a Dutch guy, a French guy. You know, they, they live right there, you know, where the gliders landed sure in Holland and D-Day. So That's they're, right, they're a big asset.
0: The, the gliders are near and dear to my heart because when I was in the 82nd, I was in 2nd Brigade, which is uh, traces its lineage to the 325. So learning about the glider riders was a, was a big part of being a young officer.
1: Yeah, a lot of the army units, obviously, they you know World War II, they were glider-borne units. You know the, the 327th. You know all these all these units, the par- glider infantry. But uh, if you can remember once after learning about the gliders, pilots and the riders, you know glider rings have a big G on them. You know in the middle of the wings with yes. wings. That G stands for guts. All the way. When right you read on. about, think about landing at night not knowing there's a stone wall, a tree, a ditch, or a fence, you know, that you're about to rip through your glider, you know, it's just a- absolutely crazy. You know, the, the night before we just went to day missions and gliders, we did nights, and it was took a, a lot of lo- – blood was lost in the learning curve.
0: Understood. Understood. We owe a great debt to those men. That, that is for certain. So how can our listeners get a hold of the book, Mark?
1: Sure. Well, it's uh, – it's at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, you know all the big the big places distributors. Uh, it's uh, published by Merriam Press, but it's actually printed and distributed at Lulu.com is is the main seller. It's soft cover and hard cover, and uh, you could just Lulu.com or Google the name, you know, uh, find it on Amazon, you know, or Barnes and Noble. You can find copies of it.
0: All right, fantastic. Well, once again, listeners, the book is called "Men Will Come." It's a history of the three fourteenth troop carrier group during World War Two by the author Mark Vlahos, colonel, United States Air Force, retired. So thank you very much for joining us tonight, Mark. I really appreciate your time. You got it, Ben. Thanks. All right. Have a good night. Cheers.